Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. People of Arise Church, it is a thrill for me to be with you this morning, and it's a thrill to think that we get to spend five Wednesdays together starting next month to talk about heaven. It's an exciting topic, but it's also a high-stakes topic, isn't it? I mean, this is uh, death and the afterlife and eternity after all. I didn't realize how high-stakes this was until I taught this at the seminary. This was a few years ago, and a student enrolled for this course called Heaven, and then he realized he really couldn't do it. He had ministry obligations, and so he went to unenroll to deregister from the course, and he went online uh, to our online platform, and, and, and he said, unenroll, and a, and a warning prompt came up, and I said, are you sure you want to unenroll from heaven? <laughs> it's high stakes, people. It's high stakes. Heaven is riddled with stereotypes, isn't it? And I'd be surprised that in your brain there's not some concept that's totally stereotypical about you dying and floating up into the sky, sitting on clouds, strumming a harp, making a beautiful noise. That kind of stereotype tends to be uninspirational to people. Former Prime Minister David Lloyd George said this, when I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape. (laughs) I have good news for you, Mr. George. I have good news for you people. Heaven is much better than that. And I have even better news than that, and this may be surprising to you. But heaven is temporary. So if you're not totally happy with heaven, it's okay because it gets better. And that may surprise you, even shock you. In fact, some of you are eyeing the exit sign right now and you're like, let's just go get an early brunch. But I believe this is what God's word teaches us, that there's something even better than heaven. There's something even better than life in heaven. That indeed, we, when we die, if we belong to Jesus, if we're believers in him, when we die, we go to be with him in heaven. I believe this. I believe the word of God teaches that we'll be safe and, and it'll be a good place. But that doesn't mean it's a forever place. It doesn't mean it's going to be our forever home. No, rather, something that we don't hear enough about in the church is that heaven is actually the intermediate. It's temporary. And so in some key respect, when we die, we will be waiting for heaven to end. I'm going to talk to you about that very thing this morning, but I don't want you just to believe me. I want you to put on your thinking caps here and go to the Word of God with me, and you tell me if this is truth, if this makes sense. And we go to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, because you may have noticed this, that when you turn to the Bible and you ask the Bible about heaven, you don't hear an awful lot. You go to the Old Testament, and there's hardly anything about heaven at all. What's up with that? And you go to the New Testament, and there's a little bit in the Gospels, and there's some in Paul, 
And then after Paul, there's not a whole lot either. But when we get to the book of Revelation, we have this very clear window into heaven, a very clear picture of what's going on there. And when you get a clear picture of the afterlife, you want to pay attention because the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot, at least not about life in heaven. But here we have it. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And what I want to point out here are three features of life in heaven. Three features of life in heaven in heaven. So if you're a note taker, here's your first point. The dead receive protection in God's presence. The dead receive protection in God's presence. You see it there in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. I saw under the altar souls Now, living under the altar might not seem like a great place to be. I mean, a little cramped, maybe. It's even smaller than my first apartment. You know, living under an altar. Well, this is metaphorical. We need to understand the genre of the book of Revelation. This is apocalyptic. It has lots of imagery. And in this case, there's an altar that we see after the fifth seal has been opened. There's seven seals, the first four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and the fifth seal gives us this window into heaven. And and there's a kind of imagery here that we want to understand. What what does the altar signify in the biblical language? Well, think about it. On the altar, you do what? You, You make sacrifices, including blood sacrifices. You have animals that are slain, And in this case, you know, the Lamb of God has been slain, and so the altar is this place of purification. It's a place of blood. And then you start thinking, oh, where do we we hear this in the Bible? Well, think about the the blood of the Lamb, which at the Passover was put over the doorpost. Remember this? Why? So that the angel of death would pass over. Why? So that the people could be protected. Or the Levitical altar system in which animals are slain so that the wrath of God might be averted. People are protected by the blood. They're protected by the altar. And therefore, it makes sense that these saints are underneath the altar. They are protected there by God's mighty hand. It becomes even clearer when we turn to chapter 7. If you look at chapter 7, verse 14, John is talking with an angel And the angel said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And this kind of protection, this kind of uh, protect, this protection through presence is important because these are the martyrs. You know what a martyr is? A martyr is someone who has given his or her life for Jesus. They've proclaimed Jesus' name and they got killed for it. It looks like they haven't been protected by God at all, but they're in heaven, they're protected. They're under the altar. And it says there in 715 that he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And again, this biblical image of presence, which is so, so powerful. For the Israelites, they identified with the tabernacle and the temple as presence. And you're safe in the temple. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
And the Apostle Paul assures us that we don't need to fear death because to depart from this life is to be with Christ. That's in Philippians 1.23. When you're in God's presence, you're safe. When you're in God's presence, you're taken care of. When you're in God's presence, you don't need to fear anything because God is sheltering you. And I feel like I know more about this now because I own a goat. I didn't do my homework on goats, but apparently goats are extremely communal creatures. And so I acquired my first goat earlier this summer. I woke up on Saturday morning. I'm like, I need a goat. So I went out and bought a goat. And it turns out that the goats are pack animals and they, they want company. So our goat, Ned, um, has decided that I'm the alpha in the family and has decided that he needs to stay by my side whenever he gets scared. And he gets scared a lot. So my goat is always getting frightened by this or that, and he will come right to my leg and trip me up because he wants to be right next to me because he knows that to be in my presence is to be protected. And this gets kind of funny because I, I own a little dog, a Boston Terrier. She's 20 pounds and harmless, and, but, but the, the goat is afraid of the dog. And so afraid of the dog that when the dog got too close to Ned, Ned decided to ram her. And so he rams her, and my little boss interior comes whimpering to my side because she knows that to be in my presence is to be protected and hugs my leg right here. And Ned, who's now freaked out, comes to my other leg and hugs this leg. And here they are, eight inches from each other, but they're both protected in my presence. For God, his presence is ultimate protection. When you are near God, you're safe. And that's how heaven is described here in chapter six and also in chapter seven. So that's good. So when you die, you're safe. When you believe in Christ, you're with Christ, you're safe. But here's number two, a second point. The dead long for completion. Yes, they are protected in the presence, but they long for completion. And you see this in verse 10 of chapter 6. Right? These are the dead. These are the righteous dead. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, this is not what I anticipated from people in heaven. Because what I was told that in heaven there's perfect bliss so you should hear this from, from the saints. I mean, these are not D-list saints, folks. These are the martyrs. From the martyrs, you would expect to hear, hallelujah, this is so great, perfection, we're complete forever, thank you, Lord. No, they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? That's what the saints in heaven are saying right now. How long? And you can hear in that some anger, but you can also hear this sense of sadness, being upset, certainly some agitation. And this is not the image we get of life in heaven, but apparently that's what's going on. In some key respect, the saints are longing, the dead souls that are longing. Well, what are they longing for? It's clear to me that they are longing for justice because they know what earth is like. Now, understand what the Bible's not saying here. It's not saying that the dead see our lives in particular and they see what we had for breakfast. No, it's not that. 
It doesn't say that the dead are interceding for us because they know about the intimate details of our lives. It's not that either. There's no basis for that. But it does say they understand what goes on on earth because they were just on earth. And they got persecuted and they got killed. And they have a pretty good sense that there's a lot of innocent people in this world who get ground up by the wicked. And they understand that on this earth, people who profess the name of Jesus are at risk and imperiled and oftentimes they die. Go to Voice of the Martyrs. People die every single day for the name of Jesus around the world. The saints in heaven know this. And they're upset about this. They long for justice. They know that the last judgment is still pending and that the wicked have not had to account for the wickedness, that justice has not been served. I also think they long for restoration. And this is a little more subtle in this particular verse, but you see it elsewhere in Scripture and it clarifies this. They are longing for restoration. And you notice this, that in verse 10, um, it's speaking about the souls in heaven. I notice the souls, those who had died. They're dead people, they're souls. And it gets complicated in Scripture. The word soul can mean different things in Scripture, just so you know. But in the New Testament, what it typically means is the soul is um, the immaterial part or aspect of oneself. It's not physical. Um, it's, the, it's the spiritual part of oneself, if you will. But, but it really is part. It's an aspect. It's a fragment of oneself. It is not the whole self. These are people who do not have their bodies. They are not fully alive. And I won't say anything more than that, although we'll clarify a lot of these questions in the five-week series. They're not fully alive. They're souls, which means that they long for something. They long for vengeance, but they also long for, <laughs> they long for redemption. They long for all the things that have been brought upon their bodily selves to be reversed. My wife makes fun of me because whenever I turn on Dateline, I can't turn away. And I know it's going to be the same story every single time, right? But I can't turn away. I'm like, what's going to happen? Are they going to find him? You know? Somebody's been murdered, of course. And they look for the killer, and they seem to have found the killer. But it turns out to be the wrong guy. So then they find the real killer. And then the real killer, they, they, they bring into court, and they prosecute this person. And at least for the, the better ones, the better outcomes, what happens? They get prosecuted successfully, they get locked up, and uh, life sentence, maybe even death row. But then you go and, and, and you talk to the family, you hear from the family, and what, and what do they say? They're like, we're so glad that justice was served, but we still miss her so badly. We still miss our loved one. And even when justice seems to be served, it's not fully served un until you have the person back. And in this life, in this age, that doesn't happen. We just lost a dear saint at our church. Um, and, and August is dead. We saw amazing things come out of his life and even his dying process. We got to see a miracle along the way. But, but it's not done. Justice is not fully served because August is not alive still. He's not risen And the saints cry out for vengeance. 
But they cry out for restoration, which can only be fulfilled when the death brought upon themselves is reversed. Only resurrection is true justice. But maybe you have an objection, and in this course we'll entertain objections and lots of questions, because I, I assure you, you'll have dozens of questions. One of the questions is, but, but, but aren't the dead in Christ already resurrected? Uh, I hear this sometimes. I admit once upon a time I believed this, that the dead were already risen. As soon as you die, you're resurrected in heaven. But that's not the case. I can tell you it's not the case because the word of God is clear about this, that these are dead souls. There's no bodies here. They're souls. The dead have to wait for resurrection. It's not instantaneous. Consider Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, which says, All these saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Apart from us, they, the dead saints, should not be made perfect. In other words, they don't get raised from the dead until we're raised from the dead. Anybody here raised from the dead? I didn't think so. And if, and if you're not raised from the dead and I'm not raised from the dead, it means they're not raised from the dead either. They're not resurrected yet. They're still waiting. The Apostle Paul is even more explicit. He says that those who teach that the resurrection has already happened, quote, have swerved from the truth, end quote, with their irreverent babbling. That's 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18. You might put it this way, that the problem for the dead in heaven is that they're still dead. I know that seems so obvious, but the problem for the dead is that they're dead. They're, they're, they're protected, they're in God's presence, but they're still dead. That's a problem. But number three, a third thing about life in heaven. The dead in heaven are comforted. They are comforted. There may be some agitation. There's a sense that justice has not been meted out, but they are comforted. Look at verse 11 in chapter 6. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. They're comforted. They rest. They're not miserable while they wait, folks. You don't need to be worried about the loved ones who have died. They're comforted. They're, they're in God's rest. You don't need to fear death. You will receive his comfort. You will receive his rest. Just to drive home this point, back in chapter 7, we read, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God's elect are protected in this paradise. They are provided for with springs of water. They're given these white robes, and I know we have these stereotypical pictures of white robes. We just did these funny pictures for, for marketing for, for the course. You'll see it pretty soon. 
uh, one of my friends, he's, he's a good sport, and he, he's wearing like a toga. <laughs> we made a toga, and I think we looked at the wrong video on YouTube because it's kind of a girly toga. I think we, like, there must be a more masculine one. Anyway, he's a good sport, he'll, he'll live. Um, but no, the, the, the saints receive these white robes. What's the significance of white robes? Well, first of all, purity. You should know this, right? They're cleansed by the blood of the lamb, they're pure, but it's more than that. Think about how hard it is to keep things white these days. You, you laundry doers, you know this. Like, I can't keep this shirt clean for like more than 45 seconds. In the ancient world, it was almost impossible. Nobody really wore white except for the truly elite, the truly wealthy, the truly royal. And so these are the people who are wearing white, the dead saints in heaven, the martyrs. And they're told to rest in these white robes. Which gets me thinking that heaven is an awful lot like a day spa. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's irreverent, but I do not mean this irreverent at all. I used to make fun of day spas because I'm a dude. And I'm like, you girls are going to go to the day spa. It's fine. Get your mani-pedi. Go do your girl thing. That's fine. Go sip on something bubbly. Yeah, whatever. I didn't th- well, one day I went to a day spa. And I'm like, what have I been missing my whole life? <laughs> this is amazing. You know, I put on my white robe. I get my hair done, oil treatment. Somebody works on my toes. I go in, sit in the steam room for a while. Then maybe hot tub, sure, why not? Read some good magazines, take a shower, repeat the process. I don't care. It's fantastic. And I get this sense that the dead in heaven are like that. They're in a day spa. They have all these things to enjoy. They, they're in the presence of God, and, and, and it's going to be beautiful and wonderful, and, and they're taken care of, and they're comforted, and they're at rest. But they still want to go home. I don't care how awesome the day spa is. At the end of the day, I still want to go home. Some of you are objecting right now because you've heard something different from your grandmother or from your father or from a friend or from a pastor, perhaps, that heaven is your eternal state. Heaven is permanent. Heaven is everlasting. There's nothing higher or better than heaven. I understand how these things get said. But follow me. If life in heaven is permanent... Why does the Bible say in Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? If life in heaven is permanent, why does it say in 1 Peter 1.5, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Ready to be revealed in the last time. If heaven is our permanent home, why does 2 Peter 3.13 say, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? If heaven is permanent, why does Romans 8.24 say, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies? If heaven is our eternal home, then why does Matthew 5.5 say, the meek shall inherit the earth? And if heaven is our eternal, permanent state, why does Revelation 21.2, the very revelation we're in, why does Revelation 21.2 say, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven? That's the end. 
Heaven comes down out of heaven. Folks, we're not waiting to go up to heaven. We're waiting for heaven to come down. I hope you understand that what I'm talking about here is not meant to be totally novel. I'm not the one to come up with this. Lots of theologians throughout the last 2,000 years have spoken of, even Reformed theologians speak of this as the intermediate state. Heaven, going to heaven when you die, is the intermediate state. It's not the final state. So what is the final state, the final hope of Christians? Well, it's not the comforted, disembodied soul. No, it's the glorious, resurrected body. That's the final state. It's not consolation in Christ's presence, as great as that is. No, it is full justice brought at Christ's return, the final judgment. It's not preservation in heaven. No, it's the fullness of life on the new earth. This is our home. It needs to be heavenized, but this is our home. Let me give you one last analogy here and see if this clicks. Um, when my wife Christina and I got married, we went on honeymoon to the Virgin Islands. I won't tell you which island because it's ours. We're not telling anybody. But we went to this island in the Virgin Islands, and it's ridiculous. It is amazing. It has white sand beaches. It's mostly national park. The houses are incredible. The food is top-notch. It is utter bliss. Well, to get to the Virgin Islands, uh, you have to go through an airport or two. And so you, you go through MSP. Uh, anybody here been to MSP, Minneapolis Airport? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you have. You know what I'm talking about. This is a nice airport, isn't it? It's well spaced out. It's a comfortable temperature. Uh, there's lots of coffee. There's um, a mall right in the middle of it. I mean, this is a nice airport. MSP is good. But can you imagine how, how silly it would be if Christina and I, for our honeymoon, had gone to MSP en route to the Virgin Islands, and we took a look around, we're like, hey, this is pretty nice. How about we just stay here for our honeymoon? Just live here all week, wouldn't that be great? But that kind of silliness is much what it's like when we say, I can't wait to go to heaven forever. Brothers and sisters, I'm not telling you your hopes are totally misplaced. I'm not. What I'm saying is your hopes are too small. You imagine great things in heaven, and they will be great. You will be cared for. Your loved ones there are already comforted. They are already safe. And, and if you die before Christ returns, you too will be in that place of comfort. But there is more. It gets better Brothers and sisters, the story gets even better. I'll invite the worship team back up as we pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we pray for better imaginations. Holy Spirit-inspired imaginations, God, we... we 
sometimes see things on earth and we think, how can you ever fix this? How can you ever fix our political situation? How could you ever fix nature? How could you ever fix our bodies? But we believe that you are God and you are good. We believe that by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the blood and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can make all things new. And so, Father, give us new imaginations, fresh imaginations, to be able to hope well and to have our hope restrained by nothing but the Word of God. God, we desire to be with you. We know that in your presence is fullness of joy. But God, we invite you down here. We, we pray even now that Jesus, you would return. And God, that you would set our hearts right as we wait. In Jesus' name we pray.